Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and this is a channel on the New Books Network, and I'm here today with Dr. Eva Glishich, author of The Futurist Files, uh, which uh, is subtitled uh, The Avant-Garde Politics and Ideology in Russia from 1905 to 1930. So thank you for being with us today, Eva. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so could you start off by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, how, where you went to school, how you became interested in, in the subject matter of this particular book, and, and so on? Uh, sure. Um, well, I studied at the University of Belgrade um, in Serbia. I did my undergraduate studies there, um, and I trained in art history. So I started, I guess, my career as, a, as an art historian. Um, I then uh, did my doctorate at the University of Western Australia um, through a strange set of circumstances. Um, and uh, I moved from Belgrade to Perth in Western Australia. Um, and I uh, studied with uh, Professor Mark Edele, uh working on um, early Soviet cultural pol- politics and, and, and policy. Um, and uh, when I completed my doctorate there, I spent a little bit of time teaching at the University of Western Australia uh, before doing my postdoctorate um, at the University of Tübingen um, in Germany uh, near, near Stuttgart. Um, and I had an absolutely terrific time there working at the Institute for um, Eastern European Studies. Uh, and this is where I actually completed the manuscript for, for this book. Um, after finishing um, my uh, position at tu- in Tübingen, I came back to Australia, um, and I'm currently living in Canberra, uh, where I work for the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Uh, so I work on a number of research projects there, and I also um, I'm affiliated with the School of History at the Australian National University. Um, so uh, yeah, I kind of moved a, a lot, uh, I guess, uh, and uh, spent time in, in Europe. Um, in Australia and the United States as well. Uh, I studied for a little while at the University of Vermont, and I'm a big fan of, of Vermont. Um, and I guess, I, as I mentioned, I started first as an art historian. I was very interested in modern art. Um, and I think probably the turning point for me was uh, a period of study in Venice um, and working at the Peggy Guggenheim collection. And uh, this is really an exquisite collection of, of modern art. Um, and it it includes a number of uh, Russian avant-garde art, uh, true masterpieces, um, but also it has uh, it, it contains the Gianni Mattioli collection, which is um, a famous collection of Italian futurism. Um, and so I guess uh, that was a first time that I really was exposed to these artworks in, in a different way, in a very direct way, but also was able to engage in the history of European avant-garde um, in, a, in a far more profound way and and surrounded by people who had an extremely deep knowledge um, of this period and of artistic development that took place uh, over the course of, of these several decades at the start of the 20th century. Um, I should probably also disclose that I uh, grew up in Belgrade uh, during the 1990s, um, a fairly turbulent period in uh, Yugoslav and then Serbian history. Um, yes, it that, was. Yeah, exactly. And so I, um, I was... 17 or 18 years old when, um, during those big demonstrations and the October Revolution that brought down uh, the regime of Slobodan uh, Milosevic then. Um, And so I had a a very direct, I guess, understanding of uh, how art becomes a political agent and how an environment is deeply politicized and what kind of role art can play in that that context. Um, And I think this... uh, uh, in a sense, this personal experience uh, of a revolutionary environment, of a highly turbulent political um, environment, um, combined with this interest in, in um, radical art, uh, was in a way how I came up, uh, uh, to this topic. And I, I think in, uh, the, in the acknowledgement section of my book, I uh, credit Belgrade really in many respects in my experience uh, as a student in Belgrade um, in many regards, that's what led me to this topic and thinking about how um, this kind of interaction between radical art and, and radical politics, but also what it means to uh, see art as a vehicle for changing um, our reality. 
I, I wonder, it, it occurred to me when you were talking about that, that there might be one other useful thing you could talk about for a bit before we get into the, the meat of the book. And that is that is kind of the relationship between history and art history. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of, you know, moving disciplines slightly. I mean, what, where do those things overlap? Where do they differ? Is that, is that something you could talk about for a minute? Yeah, of course. Um so as I mentioned, I, I first trained as an art historian, and I have to explain that the University of Belgrade at that time, that was, um, it was very hard disciplinary boundaries. So if you studied art history, you studied art history, you were an art historian. There were no electives, there were no options uh, really of moving across disciplines. So it was very traditional form, form of, of uh, delivery. Um, and so, you know, you start with your Asian Greece and Rome, and then you move up to postmodernism, and that's that's your training as an art historian. Um, But I had opportunity to sit in a couple of history uh, courses. Um, And I I think what really drew me to thinking about this um, uh, kind of intersection between uh, history and art history uh, was that I was interested in politics, I guess, and the politics of art in all its all its manifestations. So while I trained as an art historian um, in my postgraduate studies and with my PhD, I work with a a classically trained historian. And so I started to think more deeply, first about archives, which wasn't something that you get through your training as an art historian, at least not in uh, in my case. Um, Thinking about, you know, what are actually the sources for historians, but also for art historians in this instance. Um, I started to read more about social history, um, economic history, uh, more deeply about political history as well. Um, so while uh, studying of our history, you do you know, inevitably come across some of these um, strains of historical inquiry. Um, they were not as deeply embedded as what I would have liked them to be. So you focus very much on artistic production, um, the kind of evolution of different media, um, training, uh, relationship between artists and uh, um, art market or uh, patronage and so on. Um, But in many regards, what I needed was this kind of deeper involvement with with history. And, and And I think sometimes it sounds that there are such kind of close and cognate disciplines, history and art history, but really um, the training is quite different. And then, and then thinking about um, you know, your sources is also very, very different. Um, so I, I think in this book, I really emphasize uh, the need to connect these two stories, these two disciplines uh, in a much more um, systematic way than that's uh, commonly done. Yeah, that's kind of why I asked because I, I had a similar impression when yeah. uh, when reading your your book. Uh, so for the for the uninitiated, I think it might be a good idea if you could talk for a bit just about futurism broadly, uh, both in in Italy and then in uh, in, in Russia, since uh, not everyone may be real familiar with that. Yeah, sure. Um, so futurism. Um... Is, is one of the earliest European avant-garde art, art movements. Um, it emerged in northern Italy, um, so within this uh, kind of industrial triangle in northern Italy between Milan, uh, Turin, and, and Genoa. Um, and I often say this is a kind of first fully-fledged avant-garde movement. Um, now, uh, the French might not agree with that. They will insist that Cubism was the first um, avant-garde movement. Uh, but in, in many ways, futurism, Italian futurism, um, Kind of broke away from traditional notions of what constitutes um, an art object, right? What is the role of artists? What is the relationship between um, the artist and the audience? Also, where art happens is completely uh, reassessed at this point. Um, so this is kind of the major changes that, that are introduced uh, by uh, uh, Italian futurism. Um, the movement is led by um, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, who trained um, as a lawyer, but really found himself more of a poet. And so he would pursue this uh, career and he will serve really as an impresario uh, for the, the futurist movement. Um, now what's interesting about futurism in, in, is that it is what we, I guess, call today multidisciplinary nature of it, because uh, it, it included painters and sculptors, uh, poets, architects, uh, musicians. So it really tried to merge various different um, artistic practices. Um, now, we often note 20th of February of 19, 1909 um, as the birthday of uh, Italian futurism because this is the point in which Marinetti published the manifesto, the Futurist Manifesto, in the French um, daily paper Le Figaro. 
Um, and in, I mean, this was kind of a controversial piece, of course, um, in, in this uh, manifesto, um, Marinetti outlines kind of the, the main tenets of, of the futurist movement. Um, and really with, with futurism, we see the celebration of technological promise of the 20th century. Futurists are very much enamored with these ideas of speed, dynamism, of cacophony of modern urban life. Uh, they celebrate industrial beauty of machines, of automobiles, aero, aeroplanes in particular. Um, and, and so this movement embraces everything new, and, but also it provides a sharp critique of, of everything that's, that's old. Um, and so they call for you know, library shelves to be set on fire, for canals to be rerouted to flood museums in Venice. For people to pick up, um, access and destroy Italian venerable cities, and so on. Um, so, embrace of of, of modern life, of of uh, modern aesthetics, on the one hand, and destruction of of the old desire to remove and to create this kind of clean slate uh, f- uh, that can then serve a basis for uh, development of radically modern um, art and then radically modern uh, life. Um, what's interesting about futurism is that it. Uh, this is the movement that leaves the art studio in many regards, and it moves to the streets and it seeks to engage um, with public in a very direct, provocative manner. So this is the first time that we have development of a notion of, of performance, right? So sometimes there are impromptu performances where artists appear on the streets of Italian cities and provoke the public, try to cause a scandal. They will burst into, for example, uh, classrooms of famous professors while they're teaching and heckle them. Um, They will appear in uh, unusual clothing on the streets. Um, They are famous for wearing those asymmetric suits, uh, so suits that kind of were unusual, had these dynamic shapes and and, uh, kind of strong colors. Um, So so that was kind of one way of of breaking... um, out of the studios and and trying to engage and really place art at the heart of everyday life. So this is this is kind of their their primary concept here. Um, and of course, they re uh, reshaped artistic categories as we know it, including painting, sculpture, uh, music. We see kind of a lot of ex- uh, experimental approaches to to, to this kind of traditional artistic. Uh, categories. Uh, when it comes to painting, they're trying to capture the sense of speed um, and very. And they move uh, towards abstraction. Um, in sculpture, they start to use uh, materials that are picked up from everyday life, so scraps of paper, of metal, uh, and they try to introduce movement in sculpture. And you can imagine how revolutionary that was, uh, given that sculpture is by its nature a static object. Um, here we see an, an attempt to break this medium and, and, and completely uh, rebuild it in, in a new way. Um, so one of the key tenets of the movement at that point was this notion of uh, arte azione, or art as an action, art as an activity, uh, whether that's uh, about redesigning traditional artistic categories, breaking their boundaries, um, or simply m- moving that moving out of that world completely, um, then entering the streets and trying to engage with the public in, in, through this kind of provocation. Um, they also use manifesto as a major artistic tool. So this is the first time. Um, and at this point here, we see there uh, kind of this overlap between artistic proclamation and a political uh, proclamation. Manifesto right comes from uh, political discourse. And they use this now as a format through which uh, to communicate their artistic ideas. Um, and of course, futurism is a movement that we now today was, um, from its inception, political, and it engaged in political life in a very direct manner. Um, when we talk about these provocations, they are uh, designed in order to shake Italians out of their everyday routine. And the, the notion behind that is really to uh, force, uh, force them to kind of uh, confront a different reality, to shake up. Uh, everyday life to wake people up and have them embrace modern life. Uh, futurism, or rather their leader, uh, Marinetti, is often um, referred to as a caffeine of Europe. Uh, it's trying to wake people <laughs> up and embrace, get them to embrace uh, uh, this, this modern life. And for modern life, you have to be awake. So famously, Marinetti introduces a very different diet for the Italians. Uh, he uh, argues against pasta because pasta makes you sleepy. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, there is this <laughs> idea, right, that, you, that humans need to be, or Italians in 
particular need to uh, embrace modern life, need to leave their old ways behind, need to break away from this traditional mentality and, and really embrace dynamism that, this, that, that modern life offers. And to do that, they need to be shaken out of their stupor, right? Shaken out of their everyday reality. So this is what art does. And this is so revolutionary when we think about um, futurism is that idea that art looks now very different. Art is a manifesto. Art is a provocation. Um, art is a newspaper article against pasta. All of this now becomes artistic production, right? And um, in that way, we, we did, this is something radically new and modern for us. So this is why futurism is incredibly important in the history of European artistic production. It really does bring something radically, dif- radically different thinking about art. So what, what is it then that makes it such an appealing set of ideas to the Russians then, kind of moving from Italy to the, to the East? Yeah, of course. I mean, and I think that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, Italian futurism was incredibly um, influential, right? It, it uh, uh, had impact from uh, Japan to South America, uh, but really, it was in Russia that it made a particularly uh, strong influence. And we know um, from, from our documentation that uh, it was only within a matter of weeks after the original manifesto was published in uh, Le Figaro that the Russian audience fi- finds out about uh, futurism. So we have a discussion of futurist manifesto in, in a, in, in a St. Petersburg newspaper called uh, Vecher um, just a, several weeks after after it appears. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, similarities in a sense between Russian and Italian context at this point. Um, and I think Russia is similarly seeking to uh, make the jump towards, towards modernity, right? To break into uh, uh, or to, to catch up with uh, modernization and, and with this kind of new life that is uh, appearing at the start of the 20th century. So I think that longing for a radical re- reconstruction of life an embrace of modern life is a, a, a big similarity between these two contexts. And, and I think this is where the, the appeal of futurist idea really uh, comes from when you talk about Russian context. Uh, what, what is it that, uh, to your mind, makes, uh, makes the Bolsheviks such an appealing uh, political Bolshevism, I should say? What, what makes that such an appealing political stance uh, to the futurists, since so much of the book is is discussing the kind of synergy in between uh, futurism and Bolshevism. Um, yeah, well, I, I think uh, the, the, this, there's a kind of much interest here in this dynamic between futurists and, and the Bolshevik project, right? And there's a lot of uh, work that's been done in in this field that we still kind of grapple with with these ideas. Um, I mean, futurists were certainly Russian futurists. Uh, were supportive of revolutionary change. Um, in my book, I note, I mean, they were all, already involved in the revolutionary and the political turmoil uh, following the revolution of, of 1905. So um, in, in this work, I push back this timeline to capture the, the history of the 1905 revolution, uh, uh, demonstrating that many of uh, participants of Russian futurist movement became engaged uh, actively, right, in a political life uh, social life during this period. And so when Italian futurist ideas came to Russia, uh, I, I think they came on, uh, there was a fer- fertile soil there, right? There was already this uh, 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 p- political energy there, political turmoil, uh, conflict between uh, uh, progress um, and traditional uh, uh, structure of, of the country. Um, and, and, and this is uh, where the story really starts with, with these kind of radical artistic ideas come uh, into Russia that's just been through a huge revolutionary upheaval. Um, and so the main kind of actors in the book are already primed for, for this kind of thinking, I guess, through their uh, activities during the, the 1905 revolution and, and in its uh, aftermath. Um, so when, when, when we get to 1917, um, I, I I think I would like to emphasize here that a lot of scholarship on uh, Russian futurism um, notes that this is the point where the the movement becomes politicized, right? When they get involved directly with uh, Bolshevik revolution and side uh, with with revolutionary change here. But but as I know, this is actually, they're already 
very closely involved in revolutionary thinking, politics, um, and and uh, have experience coming out of the, the revolution of, of 1905 when it comes to these radical ideas and intersection between artistic and political um, activism. Um, so as I said, they're supportive of, of, of Bolshevik change. They, they firmly believe that art and cultural domain more broadly have a critical role to play uh, in introducing a new mentality among people. And so this is where um, the Bolshevik and, and futurist uh, thinking kind of com- comes together in a sense. And as I noted, the, the futurists are very much connected to this idea of art, right? of art, of art and a- action, or art is an agent of social and, and political change. Um, and so for them, Bolshevik revolution is really the opportunity to build, to build anew, right? That kind of clean slate that Italian futurism dreamed of, destroying Venice, destroying Italian cities, starting anew. Uh, really here, this is an actual real opportunity to use art to actually reimagine a, a radically modern world. Um, so this is an opportunity for them to intervene um, into this, this political project. Um, so at this initial stage in 1917, 1918, um, they work on major public projects, uh, public manifestations and celebrations. Um, they're involved in a design and, uh, uh, of propaganda trains and steamships that uh, traveled across Russia to bring uh, news of the revolution. Uh, they're also very much involved in education, uh, so uh, education of future generation of creators. Um, so these, these are not going to be artists, right, who create paintings or sculptures, but rather artist creators are, are artist engineers who create useful things uh, uh, for everyday use and, and are able to design human environment. Um, and there is a core kind of concept here that uh, that modern environment, creating new environment, can trigger creating of new habits and therefore new consciousness. Okay, so this is again where we see um, in, in uh, connection between uh, this desire to create a new world as part of the Bolshevik political agenda and what art can do within framework of that of that project. Um, but so we we think you know revolutionary art and revolutionary politics uh, in a sense go hand in hand. But of course, uh, the situation is far more messier than than that. Um, and we have uh, uh, futurists uh, belong to very different political groups uh, at this period. Um, and we know that once Bo- uh, Bolsheviks come to power, they will deal, deal directly with their um, enemies, um, and in particular the anarchist groups. And a number of our futurists here have certain associations uh, with anar- anarchist groups. Um, and so this, this is kind of a time where uh, uh, political Bolshevik leadership also shows itself to be uh, culturally conservative in a sense. So, so there isn't necessarily this immediate connection between revolutionary art and, and um, revolutionary politics. And the tensions come uh, very quickly become, become obvious between um, futurist and, and the Bolshevik leader, leadership. But they do share a common ground in the sense that um, uh, they both see art and culture as a major aspect of the revolutionary project um, and as a major tool for building a new modern Soviet um, reality. I, I found myself wondering, uh, you, know, you mentioned the, the various anarchist groups and, mm-hmm. and so on. Were, were any of the futurists uh, enamored at all of this of the socialist revolutionaries, the SRs, or did they see the kind of agrarian focus of those groups as being a kind of backward-looking thing rather than than you know a source of progress? Uh, I mean, yes, yeah, as I said, they were very diverse in their political uh, orientation, um, and and I have to note, and this is a curious aspect to Russian futurism is that it is not as uh, focused on uh, modern urban life uh, as as, it, as its Italian counterpart. I mean, you still in Russian futurism, especially in the early parts, uh, see a very uh, strong inspiration with um, Russian countryside uh, and, and motifs that come out of that, that life that are then uh, kind of combined in, in this modernist, within this modernist aesthetic. Um, when, within the birth of modern art, we often see a focus away from Western Europe and those kind of Western European canons looking towards the exotic, right? We see that in, in, in the work of many artists, most notably Gauguin and so on. Uh, in Russian case, they don't turn to the exotic necessarily. They turn to Russia's own tradition, uh, Russia's countryside, Russian way of life. So there's actually a lot of traditional elements 
um, within uh, original approach of, of Russian futurists to to this kind of concept of building building anew. Um, so that's uh, the, their attack is against tradition, um, and this early point it's an attack against the. the formal tradition, right, that's propagated in Russian art academies, which is uh, often painting that's very much inspired by Western European models. Uh, most of the teachers in the academies are Italians and French and so on. So going back to Russia's own tradition and, and peasant life and those motifs of everyday Russian life is actually a, a, their way of provocation, right? It's their way to bring down the established a hierarchy within within art, and that's their form of aesthetic disobedience, um, in a sense. So, um, and therefore, politically as well, they were kind of inclined. They, they really spread across the entire spectrum when we look at um, this this radic- radical uh, political life. So, so would it be fair to say then, kind of wrapping up that that general mm-hmm. thought that. Uh, you know, futurists would have been apt to support uh, anybody who looked pretty revolutionary who managed to gain power. Uh, well, I think to an extent, as I said, they were spread across this uh, political political spectrum on on the left or right left side. Uh, what they wanted is a radical change. So, in that sense, they they would have been supportive uh, of of any kind of effort to to bring down the established system as as it was. Um, but uh, again, I think there is a, a kind of huge uh, difference w- within the movement itself of, and and also um, how they were able to negotiate politically. Their, their reality is also a, a big challenge. What we will see in the subsequent period, once just as we kind of move into the, the years of the civil war, is that their theory will very much be inspired by Marxist writing. And so here we will see an attempt to in on in, the, in art theory writing. Uh, bring together the ideas of Italian futurism and, and Marxism. And so in that aspect, they are very close to that political theory. So I think maybe now might be a good time to, to address a, a related question, mm-hmm. which you spent some time on, which is what's wrong with looking at the futurists as utopians? Yeah, you, uh, you spent some time kind of yeah. criticizing that in the in the book, and so I was wondering if you could spend a little time talking sure. about that. Uh, of course, um, uh, I think the term utopia is something that um, I mean, as you know, that appears so frequently uh, when we look at the history of of, of commun- communism, history of of Soviet Union, and that is also part of uh, history of, of Russian futurism and generally of, of Russian avant-garde. Utopianism is here seen as a label uh, dis- describing a kind of um, very innovative artistic production, but one that was ultimately naive. It's a beautiful idea that can never be, because uh, ultimately art can't change our reality and let alone our political reality, right? It always stays in its in its own world in a sense. And so that's the label that followed um, the study of Soviet avant-garde and, and uh, Russian futurism uh, in particular um, as a, a really artistically, creatively innovative project, but one that's dissociated from, from reality. When it's, and so the label utopian here is used in a way that it's kind of often used uh, even today in our uh, uh, discourse as uh, a beautiful concept that can never that can never be right. Something that uh, stands in direct opposition to to reality. Uh, but we know right from the kind of history of, of utopian thinking that there's also a different. Um, Way of thinking of thinking about utopia and what it actually means, and so I note in my book that uh, if we look at this tradition that stems from uh, Louis Mumford and Karl uh, Mannheim and and Ernst Bloch and so on, um, that for these thinkers um, utopia was not something impossible, but rather utopia is based in reality, um, and maybe it's concept that's not uh, realizable in the here and now, but it contains a future possibility. Okay, so utopian uh, thinking for this, uh, uh, within this intellectual tradition really is something that maybe cannot be realized today, but it is based in reality and it is a, a real future potential. Um, and so this is where I want to shift discussion about futurism, uh, because if you look at their work, if you look at their production, but also 
in particular their theoretical work, we see um, there is no discrepancy in a sense, but they don't exist outside their sociopolitical reality. In fact, they are very much uh, in tune with that reality and their work directly responds to to that reality. So I, I argue my, my really main point in, in, this, in this book is to rethink uh, Russian futurist production um, as, as a, a form of artistic production that comes as a direct reaction to sociopolitical reality that is very much un- understanding of it um, and that their solutions to uh, key problems of their time were not utopian in the sense that they were impossible, uh, but rather they were very deeply informed by reality and they were future possibilities in, in that sense. You, know, you you phrased that in the book uh, quite often by by saying that yeah they had what you called a maximum program but mm-hmm. they also had a minimum program right so could you maybe provide some examples of things that you take to be uh, uh, you know illustrative of how they're they have kind of an incremental vision as well as an ideal long term vision. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'd like maybe to talk about two examples here, uh, both extremely well-known. The first is uh, the Tatlin Tower. So that's the famous construction designed by uh, Vladimir Tatlin. Um, it was part of uh, an effort um, uh, that was initiated by Lenin to create all these monuments for, for pro- mo- mo- uh, pl- his plan for monumental propaganda, right? All these kind of major works that will celebrate the, the Russian Revolution. Um, and so this is um, this is like a spiral structure uh, that contains um, uh, three three objects: so a cube, a pyramid, and cylinder on top. So it was designed as a kind of counterpart to um, Eiffel Tower. But rather than being static as an Eiffel tire, Tower, it was uh, uh, designed on an angle to show this uh, dynamic movement movement forward. And these three objects with, within this uh, double spiral had a, a particular purpose. So they, the, the first one, the cube, was designed uh, so that that's the first level, and it was meant to be used for kind of international meeting and conferences. The second level, so the pyramid, uh, was uh, going to serve as an administrative center, and then the stop section was going to be the propaganda center, right? This is where you would put together your newspapers, proclamations, your brochures, uh, radio and, and telegraph. Uh, it was a, a radio and telegraph broadcasting station. Um, it, would, it was imagined to have this projector that would show slogans or, or project slogans on, on, the, on the Moscow sky and so on. Um, and so oftentimes you will see the design for this for this monument on covers of, of uh, histories of Russian art or history of, of Russian revolution, symbolizing this utopian concept, right? This is uh, incredibly innovative, interesting project, but one that could never be, one that could never be built. It will always be what we call paper architecture, right? And so a lot of uh, futurist uh, production was seen in that way. In- ingenious, right? But ultimately uh, impractical. Um, but if you look at the, the, the theoretical writing behind it and the thinking behind this uh, Tatlin's project, and in particular the work by uh, art historian Nikolai Punin, who was uh, Tatlin's contemporary, what's important, the way that they write about it is um, that this is production that moves into a new direction. Right? It doesn't matter whether it's built or not, although they hope that it would be, but it's rather it shifts our thinking away from traditional models. So from traditional, you know, Monuments with bearded figures uh, that no one pays attention to. Right, this is a radically modern, or radically different way of thinking what a monument and utilitarian monument might look like. One that will make people stop and think, and that will change their mindset. Right. So th- this is what we uh, th- fundamentally what they argue is that these are projects that are about shifting the way we think away from traditional models and towards something that's dramatically different and, and radically new, something that can actually shape modern consciousness. Um, in a similar way, when we, uh, we see discussion about uh, Alexander Rochenko's uh, famous uh, workers' club. So that's a club that's designed um, as a space that would exist uh, within factories and institutes where workers could go after a long day of work and, and rest, right? And it was this uh, uh, beautifully designed modernist space with uh, room for reading, 
um, and there were other uh, amenities that would help people uh, or help workers um, uh, inform themselves, right, educate themselves, have that kind of ba- balanced life of work and continual self-betterment. Right? Um, and this is kind of a, an ideal model of what this worker, workers' club could look like. But of course, they understood that in many instances, that was simply not possible within Russian conditions, especially we're talking about period of new economic policy, of, of great kind of economic stress, um, and difficulties in producing anything uh, at that point. Uh, but what they write about is the fact that, okay, maybe we can't build this club today, but this is a pathway for us for the future. And instead of uh, using decoration to hide um, or to, to mask our reality, it's better to have this kind of minimum program. What are the steps, small steps that we can do today? So if we can't, we can fix a broken clock and we can set up a new set of chairs and we can design our space, not in an ideal way that Lovachenko proposed, but moving towards that image. So the sense of, and I think this is something that's been missing a lot from discussion of futurism or rather constructivist production at at this point, as we often refer to it, um, is that aspect is missing, the the, the differentiation between the fact that, yes, they had this ideal program, program maximum, but they also had this minimal uh, program, what you can do now within the context of the here and now, right? So I I thought that maybe now might be a good time for uh, uh, to think about who who are these these artists uh, as as individuals? We haven't really talked much about <laughs> um, you know specific people or anything like that. Yeah. Could you maybe uh, enlighten everyone as to what <laughs> kinds of people these are, how they get to be the kind of people they are, and so on? Sure. Uh, so I have a uh, in, in this book a collection a collection of people and um, as I mentioned in the introduction the focus really shifts throughout this book this work is not focused on a particular artist um, or um, uh, you know uh, it, it's not about even necessarily about their artistic production it's about futurist idea and the, the way that it develops and so in each chapter a different set of actors uh, push this idea forward so in the first part of the book, um, I focus primarily on the group that's uh, often referred to as uh, Cubo Futurists. So this is a group that operated of artists and poets that operated um, early in the piece or so from 1910s uh, and moving towards the period of uh, revolution. Um, and, and I introduce here poets uh, including Mayakovsky, uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky, um, uh, Velimir Hlebnikov, Alexei Krochonich, um, and painters including uh, uh, David Burluk and Vladimir Tatlin, uh, Larionov, Kamensky. So they are quite well-known figures uh, on, on, in terms of uh, uh, their artistic production, both, both painters and artists, uh, sorry, uh, uh, painters and poets working together at this point. Um, many of them, what's interesting here is that many of them um, uh, get their education in major centers in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but they come from the provinces, and this is uh, they come from all over the Russian Empire at this point. And this is what's quite interesting because um, they don't necessarily come from uh, privileged backgrounds. They're not uh, people from c- capital cities, and their uh, provocation is also the provocation of their of their background. Right, that they come as as, as intruders in a sense into this kind of high culture of capital cities. Um, so that's that's the focus in the. Uh, first chapter, uh, I then uh, move to uh, look at the work of the key theorists uh, behind uh, futurist movement. So I focus on uh, the work of Nikolai Punin, uh, Osip Brik, and, and Boris uh, Kushner. Uh, so these are uh, writers, uh, art theorists uh, that will be kind of critical uh, uh, um, for merging ideas of futurism with uh, Marxist ideas. Uh, I, I continue in the subsequent chapter focusing on, on key theorists, so, uh, Sergei Tretyakov, uh, Boris Arvatov, and Nikolai Chuzak, who are all kind of uh, also were politically active, um, but in, engaged in this concept of proletarian culture first and foremost, and then through that start thinking about what futurism or how futurism can be thought of as, as proletarian art. Um, and then in the final chapter, I, I focus on two. Uh, 
key political figures uh, when it comes to this this field. That's um, Anatoly Lunacharsky. Um, he's the Commissar of Enlightenment um, in the Soviet government, um, and then uh, Leon Trotsky, um, uh, leader of the uh, uh, opposition and the left opposition, and also someone who wrote extensively about artistic production and the role of art uh, in in uh, within the context of the Soviet revolutionary project. Uh, the book starts and closes with Mayakovsky. Um, it's hard, even if you move away from uh, treatment of futurism uh, through through uh, particular artists and poets, it's uh, impossible to avoid Mayakovsky. Um, he opens this book, uh, it's uh, a, a nice uh, talk about his police file that was uh, opened during uh, late Tsarist period when uh, so he was sur- uh, he was placed under surveillance during his the teenage years, uh, because of his involvement in some of the revolutionary activities in Moscow, and I close the book with uh, another file, uh, a file that's opened when Mayakovsky committed suicide in 1930. Uh, and following his suicide, the uh, Soviet secret police opened a file that investigated the reasons behind his suicide, but also um, the, the debates that were raised at, at this period, um, whether he. Uh, ended his life because he was unhappy with the way that Soviet political life was unfolding. And since he was so popular, both across the Soviet Union, but also internationally, there was kind of a concern what his, how his suicide might be interpreted. So this file, surveillance of these kind of uh, conversations starts uh, following his death. So he, and, and throughout the book, he appears as a kind of a key uh, figure that ties a lot of things together for us uh, in, in this story. Uh, so, uh, as I note, a, a, a very diverse collection of people uh, across the book, but at each point, uh, uh, the focus is that this is the concentration of people that push the, the development of futurism in Russia to a new new level. What uh, what did they conclude about Mayakovsky's suicide? <laughs> um, it's it's a, a very interesting file. Uh, they collect all kinds of uh, you know, uh, testimonies, and they. Uh, over her conversations uh, among, uh, or rather surveilled this conversation among uh, uh, Russian uh, intelligentsia. Um, look, to, to this day, I mean, there are books written in Russia about this file. <laughs> and on the one hand, there is, you know, always that conspiracy theory framework where, of course, it was the state that executed Mayakovsky and then tried to cover up because Mayakovsky was starting to raise too much noise about the way that political life uh, uh, in, in Soviet Union unfolded, and he was extremely influential. So they were worried how uh, his opinions might uh, influence the, p- the public opinion as well. Uh, on the other hand, what you can see in that file is really uh, uh, despair to, uh, when it comes to the loss of, of you know, a poet that was a household name, um, and also fear uh, of uh, potential uh, pacts of, for mass suicide among uh, members of Soviet intelligentsia uh, in revolt against the Soviet government and as a way to signal uh, to their colleagues or overseas what the real situation in Soviet Union really is. That, that doesn't, of course, uh, uh, realize or materialize, but these are the kind of conversations that um, uh, we can see in this file. Um, it's always hard to know why uh, anyone commits suicide. Uh, we understand that uh, the note that he leaves right uh, uh, for, uh, just before he commits suicide, is a love note um, uh, directed at one of his uh, love interests um, at the time with, with whom he sort of uh, fell out. Um, so maybe this is just a story about uh, uh, love, really an unreturned love. <laughs> <laughs> I Certainly, though, the, the notion or like a kind of culturally significant suicide has a long history mm, before exactly. that. I mean, Sus- Susan Morris, he wrote a whole book yes. about it, as I recall, which I think you cited in, in your book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, the, the, the immediate reaction there is a comparison to Sergei uh, uh, Yesenin and his suicide, which Markovsky himself um, cri- criticized in a sense. And, uh, you know, we, we know of that big history about uh, suicide as a um, uh, and not a really a revolutionary act, right? You fight to the bitter end <laughs> rather than, than than giving up. Um, and, and so it's interesting when this happens with Mayakovsky, the comparison, of course, with previous uh, instances of, of poets and artists um, committing suicide, of course. 
I I wondered you you brought up Trotsky a minute ago, mm-hmm. and I wanted to kind of go back to that. I when I, as I was reading your book, one of the points that I found most uh, interesting was the uh, the connection you drew in between Trotsky's notion of permanent revolution and mm. then the, the the futurist notion of of a similar kind of of permanent revolution. Is that something you could uh, talk about for a minute? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I think yeah, this is a, an absolutely uh, kind of crucial part of the story in many respects because you know uh, Russian futurism and this. So we talk about Russian futurism and these later stages. We often refer to this production as constructivism or production art. But in any event, this is kind of a continuous evolution of a particular artistic idea, and we tend to focus on the production rather than necessarily the evolution of the idea. But when we look at especially this theoretical writing that I uh, use for, uh, in my book, uh, a lot of futurist theorists think about futurism as a, a, a method, right? And a method that continually changes depending on the situation. So if uh, in early 1910s, uh, the, the most effective method was provocation, uh, public uh, disturbance of public order, um, d- disruption of uh, lectures of famous uh, speakers and so on. If that was... Uh, method at the beginning uh, of 1910s, that, that, that's no longer uh, the method that they will use in 1920s, right, when they move into development of propaganda projects, or later on when they try to merge artistic uh, production with industry and create objects that are useful in everyday life and design new environments in which uh, people can, can exist and which will uh, trigger right creation of a new modern consciousness. So what they argue here is that art is constant, uh, or futurism as a Artistic concept is something that is constantly changing. It's a it's a, a process. It's a method, um, and it's a dialectic method, right? It, it immediately it foresees what will be the the conflict that's coming up, and will change to react to this future, right? To find a new method, continually new method, as it adapts to new conditions. Um, and so, this is what they argue very openly during this period that uh, whether this is. Um, a form of provocation or a propaganda poster or, or a workers' club, they are all a part of the same idea. And so the, the art constantly changes. And uh, they they also see themselves as an art of crisis, art of revolution, uh, because they constantly have to respond to changes uh, within uh, Russian socio-political reality uh, in order to preserve revolutionary momentum and to preserve the gains of, of revolution, whether that's the civil war context or whether that, that's the context of the new economic policy where we see introduction of certain elements of the free market economy and so on. Um, so in that respect, they correspond or they, they, they I guess, align with uh, Trotsky's idea of this permanent revolution, this constant combat um, and change of methods as, as you move to, to adjust to, to keep the, 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 the fight going. <laughs> Uh, that maybe brings me to a, another, uh, you know, quite interesting question that, that you discussed some, which is, you know, you spent a good bit of time talking about how the futurists see Bolshevism as a context in which they can work and so on. Uh, could you talk for a bit about looking at it from the other direction, what the Bolshevik leaderships, uh, you know, in some cases, suspicions, in other cases, uh, you know, thinking that they could uh, put the futurists to good use. What, what does the view look like from the other direction? Yeah, of course. Um, we have um, a very good set of documents that can help us work work through that. And some of the recent scholarships that, that look at uh, the concept of, you know, what, what was cultural politics or cu- cultural politics, uh, uh, policy uh, in, in early Soviet period. Um, and... We often think about the, uh, you know, the futurism ended, or any kind of avant-garde artistic production ended um, in uh, early 1930s, where we have or 1932, when we have introduction of socialist realism as the dominant line in in Soviet political, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, um, Soviet cultural life. So move towards more traditional formats uh, uh, and traditional ways of of aesthetic communication, but now filled with new socialist content. Um, but that's not the full story, right? It, it never is. Um, and uh, Soviet cultural front is in not necessarily united. There is not one single cultural policy that will then include or exclude uh, futurists. Um, in, in many regards, I, I, I think where um, 
where they shared common ground with Bolshevik leadership is certainly in understanding that, um, and even before this becomes articulated in politics, uh, in art, it's already articulated the position that art will and culture will have huge role to play in shaping new Soviet reality, in changing uh, uh, Soviet mind or designing Soviet Soviet mindset. Um, so. It, now, we we know of, uh, that that Soviet uh, leadership was quite suspicious um, of futurist project. That they were worried that they are not understandable to the mass audience, which they they wanted to reach. Uh, that Le- Lenin was very disparaging of futurist production and thought that that should uh, they, their projects look like scarecrows, and that Mayakovsky's uh, uh, poetry should not really be printed in great numbers, only to satisfy the need of, of these. A, a curious group of people who might be interested in something like that. Um, so it's it's he wasn't too keen um, on avant-garde as such, but also uh, he would always he also noted that he uh, ultimately was not expert uh, on these matters, which is the line that then futurists use a lot, saying yes, Lenin was great, but uh, he himself uh, 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 admitted that he was not a really expert when it comes to artistic production. Um, Anatoly Lurachevsky is here interesting for us. He's the um, Commissar of Enlightenment, uh, as I mentioned, in the early uh, Bolshevik government. And he's in charge of all these kind of cultural and artistic matter, matters. And they have a very uh, troubled relationship with him. On the one hand, he's quite um, um, interested in, in uh, avant-garde experiments initially, but sees ultimately modernist production as um, a form of... The, the degenerate art uh, that comes from the West is a form of an empty uh, bourgeois uh, uh, self-indulgence that that originates in the West and that ultimately, while interesting, really doesn't have future when it comes to uh, Soviet production. Uh, so he's often uh, described in scholarship as someone who had the so-called soft line in cultural policy or, or promoted the soft line, uh, which uh, consisted of including experts from the previous uh, period, so uh, pre-revolutionary uh, cultural in, uh, intelligentsia uh, into uh, production for the for the Soviet state, uh, so that that expertise uh, would be kind of uh, harnessed to now deliver new socialist uh, conduct, which you can imagine futurists were not too, too, too keen on. Um, other, others uh, within the so, so, uh, Bolshevik leadership uh, had a different right take, and this is where we see um, uh, Trotsky's kind of engagement with futurists who indeed saw in, in futurist rebellion an important component in bringing down the old ways of thinking and bringing down uh, a certain mindsets and starting something uh, dramatically modern. Um, so, so I guess when we think about uh, uh, futurist production and its relationship with the Soviet leadership, um, it, it, it shifts. It's the Soviet leadership does not have a unified front in terms of whether they uh, they are against or for uh, uh, avant-garde production. In certain instances, they are very much inclusive of it, um, and in, they support, for example, avant-garde and Russian futurist publications. Um, also important is, uh, is to note here is the fact that uh, Russian avant-garde art and Russian futurist production are extremely well known overseas they become um, a face of modern progressive Russia. They have huge support among Western European intelligentsia and art circles, and the Soviet leadership is aware of that. So it does certainly uh, use that as a, 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 a way of kind of promoting itself, uh, uh, itself overseas. So it does understand that the, the influence that this production and this aesthetic has uh, uh, internationally. In other instances, you will try to uh, sideline uh, uh, futurists, futurists generally, and modernist uh, uh, artists and writers uh, as it kind of tries to uh, formulate the, what this socialist realism really should be and what this kind of traditional production that we need to return to in order to make uh, uh, Soviet message understandable for the masses. Right? So again, it's a kind of uh, interesting dynamic. There is, it's uh, certainly not what we see commonly in scholarship that Soviet leadership was um, uh, uh, kind of annoyed with futurism overall and tried to sideline it, especially after after uh, 1932. So maybe we have kind of time for for one more 
Mm-hmm. Uh, big question here, uh, and I think I think this is a nice uh, nice transition to that, which is you've argued in here then that the transition to a official Soviet, uh, socialist realism, there's a lot more continuity in that than you would think from the from the futurist era. So, you have some examples of of that continuity that you've observed here. Um. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this is a major question, um, and especially in, in, in our theory, uh, thinking about this period, uh, what is this relationship between the avant-gardist production, right, Russian futurism, and then what we will see, this uh, uh, socialist realism, which seem they seem so dramatically different, right? C- complete opposite, uh, in a sense. With socialist realism, we have returned to traditional formats of production. Uh, it, we see figurative painting, um, so, so it seems, in first instance, that they couldn't be couldn't be more apart. If Russian futurists talk about provocation, about a poster here or, or uh, a workers' club, socialist realism will give us those famous paintings, right, of, of peasants and and, and, uh, and uh, pioneers and so on. Uh, but actually, there's a lot of connection here in in the way that that these that these aesthetics develops over this period. Um, and we have terrific, some terrific works by, by Boris Groys, who discusses this in, in, in great detail, uh, where he notes that there, the connection here is really uh, understanding that art is a critical part of in, in shaping uh, social consciousness. Uh, both projects are optimistic, so futurism is really defined by its optimism, by its embrace of, of, of modernity rather than shying away from it. And social realism is similarly infused by that optimistic worldview. Um, that, uh, uh, as I say, both art need both both of these concepts. Where I focus on how art can transform um, everyday life. Um, but my argument is that this is not uh, simply a theoretical continuation, but uh, even pr- practical one and, and and actually real life one. Is a lot of these artists will continue working within the Soviet system. They will continue producing. Uh, various forms of of uh, uh, various types of, of art, whether that's in in uh, shape of a photo book uh, or through uh, direct education of future artists uh, in architecture as well, we see a very clear continuity between uh, uh, constructivist projects and, and social realist projects. Um, so I emphasize in my book that this is not certain, just a theoretical uh, continuity uh, and relationship between these two uh, aesthetic movements, but uh, that there is a kind of a physical continuity as well with a lot of these artists participating in projects that will in fact define socialist realism as a Soviet cultural paradigm. Well, we're, we're kind of starting to run out of time here. <laughs> and so I was wondering if maybe we could finish up by uh asking you um, now that you've you've written a good bit of here about this really interesting period in the the mm-hmm. artistic avant-garde what what are you working on next do you have any new projects on the burner you'd like to talk about mm-hmm. for a couple minutes yeah of course uh, i'm i continue to uh uh think about art as a uh and its relationship to political struggles. I'm um, interested in the way that some of these futurist strategies reemerge today, uh, especially within the Russian context, but also in the context of um, Eastern Europe and uh, particularly for, former Yugoslavia and, and that, that space. So the way that the performance is today used as a, uh, and, and provocative performances are used today as a way to make a political statement. So in the conditions where uh, an ability to speak freely on political matters is severely restricted. So I moved my focus on, on contemporary uh, uh, period uh, and expanded it to uh, look at comparatively into, into this, uh, post-communist societies, uh, uh, Russia and, and former Yugoslavia, that don't necessarily um, often come into, into view. They're not necessarily two areas that are, that are studied comparatively. So uh, this is what I'm currently working on. Of a contemporary version of the kind of stuff Padraig Kenny looked at in that Carnival of Revolution book, uh, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, people would have, of course, heard of, of uh, art collectives like Pussy Riot or Voina. Uh, the artist uh, Piotr Pavlensky, who's been in, in the news uh, quite a bit recently, uh, and they very uh, directly uh, draw on this tradition of tradition of, of futurism and, and of this aesthetic disobedience that was formulated uh, in early early um, 20th century in Russia. 
Well, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I very much enjoyed reading the book and hearing you talk about it in more detail. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, I'm very uh, happy to support this project, which helps us all kind of keep in touch at this time. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a timely uh, uh, timely moment to have these kinds of chats. <laughs> so thanks again. Exactly. Thank right. you very much, Aaron.